What defines success? Everybody's going to get knocked down in life, regardless of who you are or what you're doing. The question isn't how you get knocked down. The question is, how do you get back up? What happens when you get knocked down? It's only your, your good friends that you let that close to your back unprotected. And so really, it's usually your best friends that uh, stab you in the back. What makes some people radiate? I really felt that as the founder and CEO of the company, who else believed in it more than I did? This is Radiate. Hi, everyone, and welcome to Radiate, the show where we interview some of the world's most successful people to find out how they work their way to the top. This week, the man famous for guaranteeing the way you look, George Zimmer, the former CEO of Men's Warehouse. He started the company 40 years ago with his college roommate and grew it to over $2.5 billion in sales. On this show so far, we've talked to plenty of people about their challenges, mistakes, failures. Well, two years ago, George went through a traumatic experience when he was fired by his board over a disagreement. Some of the members were his closest friends. George is back with two new companies, a rental tux company called Generation Tux and an on-demand tailoring startup called Z Tailors. In this conversation, George speaks frankly about what happened at Men's Warehouse and how he's making his comeback, guaranteed. George has a great voice already. That is, Thanks to see that. <laughs> that is perfect. We gotta, you're going to like this podcast, I guarantee. Yeah, 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 exactly. You're going to like this podcast, I guarantee it. <laughs> I love it. So, George, great to have you on Radiate. I'm really looking forward to this conversation. Okay, so, you know, a lot of people look at you and they say, you've built this company, built Men's Warehouse. And we'll talk about, you know, what happened in the last couple of years. But I want to talk about the first, what, 30, 30 years of growth of Men's Warehouse. You started this with your college roommate. Like, how did you build this business into one that eventually had two and a half billion dollars in sales? Well, I, I started with just seven thousand uh, dollars, an undergraduate degree. We never had an MBA involved until much later on, and it was really because we didn't know what we were doing that we weren't discouraged by the early results. Because the day we opened. We ran lots of newspaper ads and did $3,000. This was 1973. Mm. and That's a one, lot of money. Yeah. And the next day, without newspaper advertising, we did $60. So that was a uh, <laughs> quite a wake-up call. And that, by the way, is why it was not hard to talk us into going onto television instead of print. Because mm. print had a very short life. Okay. Whereas TV builds a brand over time. Really, the, the thing that I've always uh, uh, tried to share with, with people is that after having been in business for 10 years, you would think your company is secure and stable. And in fact, in the early 80s, there was a oil meltdown in Texas. We were a Texas company and our bank loan was called. It was only $2 million, but we had to pay it back in 60 days or else. Because they were seeing bankruptcies all around them with oil companies. Every place, every Texas-owned bank 
was acquired by an out-of-state bank during this period. Uh, The bank examiners set up offices inside all the Texas banks uh, to evaluate all the loans. So I I was looking desperately uh, to solve the problem, and and the solution uh, was that if I could find $500,000 of new money, another bank would step in and loan the $2 million that we needed. Uh, And I traveled all around North America uh, trying to sell 25% of the men's warehouse for $500,000. I thought this was giving it away because I'd been in business 10 years. Right. And And you had no takers? I finally found a guy up in Toronto. I'll never forget him or his firm. His name was Wilfred Poslin. And he was the CEO of a, a big Canadian retail conglomerate called Dilex. And we had dinner the night before, and he walked me through a big Toronto mall and pointed out all the various stores that they controlled. And the next morning, I really thought we were going to make a deal. And when I said, I just need 500000 and you can have 25% of the company, He said, you know, George, I really like you and I like your business. Make some money this year and come back and see me. And I said, Mr. Poslin, if I make money this year, I won't come back to see you at 25% for 500 grand. He said, that's okay. I want to invest in something that's working. Uh, So he never made the investment. And at the end of the day, I had to get the money from my mother. Wow. Who got it from her father. It was quite a story. And that's what saved the company. So you traveled all around the world. How many how many rejections do you think you got during that time? Oh, not that many. Okay. Maybe formally a half a dozen. Okay. But your business, you had been running this business for 10 years. It was a working business. It that's was profitable. Right. And it made money eight out of 10 years, all except the first and the 10th year. And, uh, well, that's, I think, the way capitalism works. Uh, When you don't need money is when banks are inclined to give it to you. Mm -hmm. And and when you do need money, it's it's usually difficult to get. So what did that teach you, George? Well, that taught me a number of things. Uh, Number one, it taught me that uh, I ought not be so brash and cocky about everything because... Uh, I almost endangered not just the company, but all the people's uh, careers that had been developed over a decade. Uh, But it also told me that my economic model probably was not the right model. And it was from that problem that we actually redesigned the economic model in the mid-80s and adopted uh, everyday low pricing. Hmm. which uh, is what got J.C. Penney's into trouble a few years ago. The difference with us is we were still a private company then, so all we had to have was the courage of our convictions. We didn't have Wall Street yelling at us every 90 days. Right, you could make your mistakes. That's right. And you wouldn't have shareholders selling down your shares. When uh, your comp increases turn negative and are double-digit, Uh, If you're a public company, you have real problems. 
as a private company, it's, it's uh, bearable. So did you always know you wanted to be an entrepreneur? Well, you know, people have asked that before, and I guess the answer is yes, because when I was in grade school, I ran the school store selling erasers and <laughs> pencils for two cents to a nickel. And I really enjoyed the uh, game of, of buying and selling and, and making money. You liked and being the merchant. I did. I liked uh, the whole mercantile world. Mm -hmm. And so it felt natural to you. But did you start Men's Warehouse in college? I started it when I was 24. Okay. Okay. What did you do before that? I was a substitute high school teacher okay. uh, when I graduated from college. And uh, uh, then in 1971, I graduated in 1970, my father, who was an apparel manufacturer here in New York, recognizing that his son was drifting away from business, uh, invited me to accompany him on a trip to Asia looking for factories uh, where we might import into the United States. Uh, as I found out many years later, he had no intention of going on this trip himself and just wanted to send me. He designed me. it for you. And, and when I said to him, you know, Dad, I don't know anything about your business. How can I go to Hong Kong and talk intelligently to anybody? His response was, they're going to love the fact that you're my eldest son and you've come in my stead. And they were right. He was right. Uh, it was a, a successful trip, although I couldn't wait to get back to the United States. <laughs> right. Do you like the apparel business? Do you like being in the retail business? I like being in business. I love business, but I am not a clothes horse. So I can't honestly say that fashion makes me excited. To me, it's what we do. I've always said that we should dress appropriate for what we're doing that day. Mm -hmm. So uh, if I'm here uh, in New York, interviewing with you, I'm in a suit. But if I'm sitting around in the hotel room tonight, I may be wearing sweats. Right. So you don't, it's not like you walk into a, re you know, you don't, you don't walk into wherever, like a, like a Zara or a department store and you're like, or, or, or even like a JCPenney or whatever. And you don't go, Ooh, I like this. I like that. You're just not like, I, that's not what's interesting to you. I'm not the merchant. And in fact, when I was at men's, my brother was the suit and sport coat buyer for 30 years. So we were partners and I let him, uh, uh, be the fashion guy and make the trips to New York and Europe. And I just took care of the employees, the marketing, uh, the finance and the real estate. So you like running a business. That's right. It's interesting because when you say that, it's it's just fascinating because, you know, I, I, I so identify you with Men's Warehouse. I think a lot of people do, right? I mean, they think what your voice, you, you, know, you start in the commercials. And they do think of you as a clothes horse, right? I mean, they think of you as the brand, someone who's representative of the, of, of the professional man, right? Well, I believe that although I may not be an actual clothes horse, uh, I, I still dress like a pretty good pony. <laughs> All right. Now, what was the decision? What, what, 
Who is in your calculus for you to become the spokesperson of, of Men's Warehouse? Well, of course, we had been running television commercials for about a decade, so I was not scared by it. And I worked cheap. Uh, we didn't have to pay any any talent fees. And, and you're and available anytime. I'm available anytime. <laughs> uh, and I really felt that as the founder and CEO of the company, who else believed in it more than I did? And I thought that that would come through uh, in the commercial. So we simply set up a, 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 a fake training class with three cameras. And I had the employees ask me real questions and I gave real answers with three cameras filming it, uh, and then we edited it together into a commercial. Uh, uh, many people have asked where the uh, I guarantee it came from, yep. and that was an ad lib, because what I wanted to say as I was speaking in this ad lib uh, context was I wanted to say to reinforce how much I believed in what I was saying, uh, uh, a line that Bill Murray had used in, in Stripes, where he says, that's the fact, Jack. And I edited that because I realized if I had said that, it would never run on air. <laughs> so I changed it to, I guarantee it. Probably the most trite expression of all time. But uh, through repetition and consistency, I guess it, it caught became, on. It became, right, exactly. It became the slogan that everyone identified you and Men's Warehouse with. Have you thought about repeating that at all for your new company? Well, I, I, I'm looking for a, a new slogan that I can trademark. Since uh, I started Men's Warehouse uh, in 1973, it has gotten much more difficult to get trademarks because there are companies now that are out uh, marking all of these things. Uh, but I, I, I still, when I'm doing uh, charity work or uh, uh, community work, uh, I still play with the old expression. I don't use it uh, for commercial purposes. Do people ask you to, to say that line all the time? They ask me uh, <laughs> less today than they used to. In fact, most people today think I'm the Dosecki's guy. <laughs> I don't often you drink have, there's beer. There's a trace of that. <laughs> I don't often drink beer, but when I do, I prefer Dosecki's. Stay thirsty, my friends. I love... George Zimmer, the most interesting man in the world. Uh, and I love being that man when I go out and about now, people say, are you the Dos Equis guy? And I go, I am. And then, you know, that's... <laughs> and if I say I'm the men's warehouse guy, they go, that's even better. <laughs> Too funny. Now, when we continue on Radiate, George goes deeper into his dismissal from Men's Warehouse. How do you deal with not only losing your job, but the company you built and the friendships you made? Radiate is brought to you by GoToMeeting. Think about all the time, money, and hassle it takes to hold a meeting. Our recommendation, meet your clients and coworkers online with GoToMeeting because it's a smarter way to meet. 
GoToMeeting makes it easy to meet with your team wherever and whenever you need to. With GoToMeeting, you can meet from any computer, tablet, or even smartphone. No travel expenses, no hassle with traffic. Your team can join by clicking a link. No signups, no speed bumps. Turn on your webcam and boom, it's like being in the room. You can share screens to present, review, and get feedback in real time. Because with GoToMeeting, everyone sees what you're seeing so your team can get on the same page and get going on that project. So sign up for GoToMeeting today. Try it for free for 30 days. Nothing to lose. Visit GoToMeeting.com and click the Try It Free button. Do it now and have your first meeting up and running in minutes. That's GoToMeeting.com for your free 30-day trial. was it like getting let go by the board two years ago? Well, it was, of course, shocking. It wasn't totally unsurprising, but uh, it was nonetheless quite a, a shock because since I was not just the founder, the CEO, the chairman of the board, but the television spokesperson, I honestly did not think, regardless of the disagreements that we had, that they would ever consider letting me go. You were too identified with the company, right? I thought so. And in fact, they preferred that I stayed. They wanted me to remain as chairman emeritus, which was a figurehead position. And, and that's just not uh, something that uh, suits my style. Mm -hmm. So I, I declined that. And then they immediately uh, let me go and, and said, uh, George, we've put your stuff in storage. And I said, my furniture? And they said, yes, your furniture and all 40 years accumulation of files was put in storage. And I've not been back to my office since. It's been two and a half years. Nor do, they still have, do they still have an office for you? I think they put a ping pong table in there is what I've heard, but <laughs> okay. I, I don't really know. And I'm, I've not spoken to anyone uh, that was on the board or senior executives. But they were some of your good friends, weren't they? They were all my close friends, and that's what I think made it particularly difficult. Uh, very Machiavellian, and, and I reread Machiavelli, and it, it's only your, your good friends that you let that close to your back unprotected. And so really, it's usually your best friends that uh, stab you in the back. But what happened, George? What happened was very simple. I had named a fellow that I had hired as our neckwear buyer, and I had named him as CEO and said to him, look, I'm not retiring. I want you to report to me as executive chairman. For the first year, everything was fine. And then we started to disagree about the direction the company ought to go. Uh, uh, unlike what you might have read, I never imposed my will on the board or my successor, mm -hmm. and they proceeded to make decisions that uh, I did not agree with. So I began exploring the possibility of going private. At that time, Men's Warehouse was trading for four and a half times cash flow. Mm -hmm. 
And to my surprise, I was informed that we could give the shareholders a 40% premium and go private at the same time. When the board heard that that was on my mind, I, I think they saw it as a dog eat dog and decided to get rid of me first. Because they didn't want to do this. They were opposed to going private. I think they felt that enough bad blood had already happened that not all of them would have been secure in their jobs. Hmm, interesting. I mean, and I only ask you this, George, because a lot of our listeners are entrepreneurs themselves and they, you know, when whether they're looking to start a company or they want to grow their own companies, you know, a board is on their minds, right? How do they put together the right board? And you hear this all the time, corporate governance or not, you know, you want to put your best friends on the board, right? You want to put people who are going to support you. So at what point did you know that you lost the board and would you have done anything different? Well, I think that's a great point, Betty, because my board was, we were family and, and I had known one of the guys since high school. So, I mean, these are people that had to make a decision to throw the founder out. Uh, it, it really seemed inexplicable, mm-hmm. but, uh, but they did it. I think what it says is that if it can happen to George, it can happen to anybody in business and particularly in public companies. And what advice would you give entrepreneurs who are putting boards together? I mean, what advice would you give them? Well, you know, that's a tough question because I thought I had selected a board that was not primarily made up of business experts, but made up of people with with good judgment. Yeah, Deepak Chopra on your board. I mean, <laughs> Deepak and I were were very good friends, and uh, uh, we have not spoken in all this time. Uh, in his defense, I believe he may have been out of the country when this decision was reached, but he did vote to oust me uh, on the telephone. So, have you spoken to any of them since then? Not one. How do you feel about them? I feel sorry for them. Uh, I think that what they have now discovered in a very harsh way is that they may have made a mistake. Now, it's going to be impossible, I believe, for people in that position to admit that they've made a mistake. So I, I don't expect to get a phone call anytime soon. But I think they feel badly because, don't forget now, a lot of the employees had a 401k mm-hmm. and an ESOP that had a lot of men's warehouse stock in it. Do you still have men's warehouse stock? I do. And uh, I sold most of my men's warehouse stock, but uh, in the most recent drop, I did lose millions of dollars. You and, did? Okay. And the stock's down like 70% or something. Yeah. And, you know, I, I guess one of the reasons why the employees of uh, used to love me is that money isn't what drives me. Uh, I'm not bribable, and losing millions of dollars isn't as severe as the emotional joy in, in seeing what has happened without me. Speaking about emotion, I mean, take me back to that day, because that must have been a pretty pretty rough day, being called in and told that your furniture after 40 years is in storage. You're smiling about it now, in a way, because... 
I, it's been a few years since it happened, right, George? So you can look back on it, but that must have been traumatic. You know, it was traumatic for maybe a week. The night I was fired, I came home for dinner, and uh, everybody was very uh, uncomfortable at the dinner table. Your nobody, family. Nobody wanted to talk to dad, who now <laughs> no longer had a job. And I finally said to my family, I, I have four children, and I said, you know, everybody's going to get knocked down in life, regardless of who you are or what you're doing. The question isn't how you get knocked down. The question is, how do you get back up? And I said that without actually Absolutely. knowing how I was getting up, but knowing that I was going to get up. And that I think it was Groucho Marx that once said any club that wants to have me as a member it's not a club i'd like to join <laughs> right. so once people on a board decide they don't want you uh it was not difficult to go away but it was so much a part of your identity wasn't it well uh yes it it was i i think that i've become sort of this uh iconic uh person in in america now I actually believe that I have never been more popular than I am today. When I was just a CEO, I was just a CEO. But now I'm a wronged CEO. And I think that the American uh, support for the underdog has been activated in, in my defense. Totally. I love how you say that. Like, you know, in a, in a weird way, George, I mean, you know, you were already very successful, obviously, as the CEO of Men's Warehouse and the founder. But now you've got like a story to tell, right? I mean, you had a story before. But it's actually a more interesting story. I mean, I hate to boil it down to that. No, you're but, absolutely right? right. Well, I mean, there are things about my uh, earlier career that are not well known. For instance, after we went public in 92, I stopped compensating myself. Now, technically, I drew a salary, mm -hmm. but I turned around and gave it in the form of $5,000 a year college scholarships to children of Men's Warehouse employees. Wow. So in the last 20 years I was at Men's Warehouse, I actually earned nothing. I, I earned about $10 million and gave about $10 million away in college scholarships. So you can imagine how the people in the stores feel about having uh, George uh, uh, dismissed it, it. It's incomprehensible, really. So what's opened up for you? Because I always believe like in moments like this, right? Like a new world opens up. So what's opened up for you? Well, my, my new business is like, really like God was watching this happen and dropped this in my lap. In 1999, after men's had been around a quarter of a century, we went into tuxedo rental, and it grew into this $400 million business that was enormously profitable. So now, my new act is I'm doing online tuxedo rental. So I'm getting the opportunity to roll up an industry using technology much like I had done 15 years ago. So to me, it's, uh, I don't know what could be better than that, really. So when you were at Men's Warehouse, though, were you skeptical, though, about online businesses? Were you skeptical about technology? 
It wasn't so much that I was skeptical. It was that as the CEO, I knew how much of our store traffic was generated from tuxedo rental. Remember, you make three trips to the store every time you rent a tuxedo, whether it's a prom or a wedding uh, or New Year's Eve. And and so uh, the idea of going online when we already had such a successful rental business just seemed like we might be shooting ourselves in the foot. Mm. So we stayed away from it. I think the lesson for entrepreneurs, uh, including myself, was that was a mistake I made. And when you see something come along that makes sense, you better do it and become your own competition before somebody else Rather does. Rather than let someone else do this. So, so, so how are you acquiring customers? Because that's the hardest part about building a business, right? A consumer-facing business is how do you acquire customers? Well, we're, we've got uh, 10 different uh, avenues to bring people into our funnel, if you will. Okay. Keyword advertising, digital advertising, bridal shows. Uh, we're going to be at uh, a dozen bridal shows in January. And uh, not only are we now looking for the brides, but we're also looking for wedding planners and other people who work in the wedding business. Mm-hmm. We've set up a uh, auxiliary website called Style and Delight. So anybody who's in the wedding business can come to our website and get a commission for having uh, the people in the wedding use our tuxedos. Okay, so you've got like, so as you say, you have 10 different ways to to get people into into the funnel. How do you you get people going to, from going to your site to actually renting? What do you, what's the secret sauce there to get them to hit hit the button and buy? This was something that uh, I had to understand back when we began this. When you're in a bricks and mortar business, you have salespeople and customers come into your stores. And if your salespeople are knowledgeable and friendly, uh, you can do business. When you're doing it online, then the website has to act as the salesperson. And so we spent a lot of money and a long time designing a website so that millennial mostly women because 80 percent of the tux rental business is is done by women for their weddings uh uh it it's it's done so that they will find it of value and interesting i'll give you two examples one is we have a a a mannequin uh on our site that can be dressed in all the different components of the tuxedo uh, different colors, different styles, so that the bride can can get a sense of what it will look like. Right. The other thing that we built in was a way for people to track their weddings. One of the fears that uh, women have is that their husbands, friends who are going to be groomsmen <laughs> at the wedding. Uh, are going to ruin the album by not being dressed appropriately. <laughs> and, and so one of the things that we uh, guarantee is that that will not happen. And that's why I opened this other business, Z Taylor, 
which is an on-demand national tailor network so that if you have a need for a minor adjustment, whether it's a, a, a hem or a sleeve or even a strap if it's a lady's uh, a dress, we will send a tailor or a fit pro to your home or office or even wedding to make it right. So why start two, Why start this other company? So you started two companies. Why start two? Well, they were originally one company. Okay. And investors told us to split it into two companies. And the reason is, is, is quite simply that online apparel has surged in the last few years. And I don't know if you saw the movie uh, The Intern yes. with uh, Robert De Niro. Matthew, and our producer, is nodding yes. <laughs> and, and so uh, Anne Hathaway's business that she develops in that movie is all about fitting uh, online apparel. And so what nobody really factored into the online apparel uh, uh, business was, well, how are you going to get it to fit? Uh, back when online began, I, I used to think it would be great for videos and uh, hotel reservations and airline tickets, but how would it ever work in apparel? People want to touch it yeah. and try it on. Well, uh, it became so successful that with a couple of exceptions, uh, Rent the Runway and, and Zara, they, they, they send a, a second garment uh, to to try to deal with that problem, but there really is no substitute for a real tailor coming to your home or office and tailoring the the product to fit you exactly. Uh, uh, what the investment community said is that when the tipping point is reached, where all the online apparel retailers realize that they can avail themselves of a tailor service like Z Taylor. They felt we ought to have a separate company for people to invest specifically in that. You know, it's funny because, I mean, I didn't really know the value of tailoring until I got into television when I realized, like, my clothes really have to fit and they have to fit well. And it makes such a big difference. A few, you know, tweaks here and there really make a difference, you know, in making your, your clothes fit custom. I mean, everybody... And I, I'm sure I'm exaggerating. There probably are a couple of people for whom this is not true. <laughs> but everybody has hanging in their closet right now clothing that doesn't fit and that they rarely wear. Even clothing with the store tags on it Me. that they've never even worn it once. So there are literally billions of dollars of apparel hanging in closets that needs to be tailored. So, George, uh, you're how old are you again? You're seven. Sixty-seven. Sixty-seven. Okay, <laughs> I didn't mean to age you. That's okay. <laughs> okay, so sixty-seven. Um, did you ever think that? Hey, I'll take my millions and I'll just, I'll, I'll just go retire somewhere. I tried for about a week. I sat in my backyard. I have a beautiful home in, in California and uh, thought, gee, I, I do play golf and I, I, I like tennis, but I only like those things when I'm doing them recreationally. If I'm doing them because that's all I've got to do, 
then I think I would get bored very quickly. And what do you hope Generation Tux and Z Tailors become? What do you what do you hope for them in five years? Well, you know, Generation Tux is really renting tuxedos and suits like the one I'm wearing. So I believe that we're going to launch next year. I'm calling this uh, uh, euphemistically now the Suit of the Month Club, much like Harry and David's Fruit of the Month Club. (laughs) And I think millennials who like to wear suits to party and jeans to go to work would very much respond to the idea of renting a couple of suits, kind of the Netflix model. When you get tired of that particular suit, send it back and pick out another one. So a subscription service. Exactly. Okay. That's interesting. So I think that's something that, uh, you know, it's not going to happen in in a significant way next year. But I think if you look out five years, it may become the way people acquire clothing, much like Airbnb or Uber. Next week on Radiate. One of the people who pioneered venture investing, Alan Patrickoff. He's helped build some of the best-known companies, including AOL, Office Depot, and a little company called Apple Computer. His firm, Graycroft, is now invested in some of the hottest startups, including Venmo, Munchery, and many more. Hear his story and what advice he's got for the budding entrepreneur in you. Thanks for joining us. I'm Betty Lou. If you like what you heard, please review and subscribe to us on iTunes and find me on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and LinkedIn. See you next week on Radiate.